Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, author of Common Sense Pregnancy. And today I want to talk to you about something that's proven to improve maternal health outcomes, make mothers happier, make them healthier. And it's so down to earth and practical, and it makes so much common sense that it's amazing more women aren't utilizing it. I'm talking about doulas. Now, doulas are trained professionals that provide non-clinical, emotional, physical, and informational support before, during, and after childbirth. They uh, visit with women during pregnancy to provide information and support to prepare them for their birth experience. They stay with them throughout their labor and birth to make sure all their needs for comfort and information are met. They coach, they massage, they help moms reposition. They remind the mother to utilize her prenatal education techniques to relax and manage contractions. And they provide the continuance, continuous presence of someone who's been there, knows what birth is about, and has the training and skill to support mothers during one of the most vulnerable times of their lives. She's an advocate. She helps mothers have the births they want and helps them understand what's happening when the birth they want doesn't pan out. And people ask, but isn't that what fathers are supposed to do or labor coaches? Isn't that what the nurse or midwife does? Um, I wrote a section in the book, in Common Sense Pregnancy, that I title, If you have a midwife, a nurse, a partner, and a labor support team, do you need a doula? I'm going to read a little bit of it here. A growing number of women are hiring doulas to assist them through labor and birth. While woman-to-woman maternity support has been around forever, doulas are relatively new. If you have a labor support partner and a nurse during labor, do you really need a doula? You might, but you want to get the right one. There are certification and training programs available for doulas, but there aren't any regulations that govern who can and cannot say they're a doula. I've worked with some really great doulas over the years. They understand labor and birth from the physiologic and emotional angles, and they know how hospitals work. They're gifted at helping women get through really hard contractions and labor transitions. They understand medical language and routine procedures, as well as how to help mothers work around interventions that weren't part of their birth plans. And when those plans have to change quickly, the really great doulas know how to shift gears and continue providing top-notch support. A good doula-mother relationship can be very impressive and enables many women to have the natural birth they want. Women remain more mobile, feel more supported, and use more creative coping skills to get through the toughest stretches of labor. Studies indicate that when a doula is involved in the labor process, women have fewer C-sections and report greater satisfaction with their birth experiences. Now, I've also worked with some seriously offbeat and challenging doulas. A few have had strict personal agendas and confrontational approaches. They started arguments with medical staff over minor issues like taking mom's blood pressure. I've known doulas who've told their clients that under no circumstances would they allow them to have an epidural or C-section. As you can imagine, this does not contribute to peace and harmony in the labor unit. I've known families who fired their doula during later labor because she created too much conflict. More often, however, doulas are kind, knowledgeable, compassionate, efficient, and supportive, and a real asset to the patient and staff's overall birth experience. Some doulas also provide postpartum services for mothers and babies at home. 
Some doulas also help with breastfeeding and newborn care and provide other services while mom recovers from birth. Um, you can read more to, more about it in the book. Um, <clears throat> there was a time a long time ago, I mean, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, where I would have said that women didn't really need doulas. Um, but that was a long time ago. And the issues that women face as they give birth in America now has changed my mind. Now I think that just about any woman could, who chooses to give birth in a hospital could use the services of a good doula. Any woman who has a home birth could use that extra set of hands too. And study after study indicates that having doulas at delivery um, is only a good thing and there are no downsides. The deal is, though, that only women who can afford to pay for doulas can use them. And there are a number of community organizations that provide low-income women with doula services at little to no cost. And that's particularly important for women of color who have higher rates of poor outcomes and in many parts of the U.S. receive a lower quality of maternal care. And that brings me to what I want to talk about today. There is a new issue brief that was released um, last week that talks about, um, it was released by two organizations that are dedicated to improving maternal health outcomes. Um, one is Choices in Childbirth, and the other is the National Partnership for Women and Families. And this brief makes a really powerful case for the health benefits of doula care and the significant cost reductions that would result if more women used doulas. So today, I'm going to get Nan Strauss, Director of Policy and Research um, at Choices in Childbirth, on the phone to tell us about the brief and about her thoughts on why women need doulas. Hi, Nan. Hi, Jean. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for hopping on the phone with us. This is one of my favorite topics. Oh, great. Well, I'm very happy to be talking with you about it today. So I think the last time that you and I talked, we were standing in cold drizzle at a park in Brooklyn for the Miles for Midwives run. I think it was last June, right? Uh, That's where it was. I think it was last October. Oh, you're right. Of course. Of course. It was in October. Time flies. (laughs) (laughs) So it's pouring buckets here in Portland today. So we seem to be, you know, holding our own on the lousy weather market. Mm -hmm. Well, here in New York, it is bright and sunny, but also very cold. So how cold is cold? Oh, I don't know. It's cold. Really cold. Probably in the 30s. Okay. All right. I get you. Definitely colder than October in New York. So yeah. (laughs) Yet I felt very sorry for myself. It was cold and drizzly and ugh. (laughs) Right. Well, when you're out in it for two hours and wet, it's challenging. Yeah. And for me, you know, since I live in Portland and we have gray drizzle, you know, year round sometimes, anytime I get out of town, all I want to do is be in a sunny climate. So (laughs) yeah. Well, listen, Nan, I want to start out by having you describe what Choices in Childbirth is all about. And I'm going to I'm going to read your mission statement, but then I want you to translate that into, you know, normal English for our listeners. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm grabbed. I grabbed this off the About Choices in Childbirth page. Choices in Childbirth is a nonprofit organization that works to ensure access to maternity care that is safe healthy, equitable, and empowering. Our mission is to promote evidence-based, mother-friendly childbirth options 
through public education, advocacy, and innovative policy reform. What does that mean in normal English? <laughs> sure. So we have several strands of work that we do and have been doing for a long time. One of them that I'm the least involved with is that we do childbirth education workshops. It's different from classes because it's not intended to give families all the information they need either in one sitting or over multiple um, sessions, but really what it's, it's unique because it brings together expecting families with moms and dads of babies who've been born recently, sitting alongside providers, doulas, childbirth educators, and talking about a particular theme, whether it's how to have a great hospital birth, who you want on your birth team. And it's a really wonderful forum and model because what it does is it addresses how you can address your own questions and problems and dilemmas and, and how to weigh the different options that are out there. So it's really not prescriptive. It's in some ways about the same thing that it means to be a good doula. It's about getting information that you need to make decisions yourself, make decisions that are right for you. What are your priorities and how do you get those met? And, and it's also uh, very special in that it does combine the healthcare providers perspective with the mom's perspective with doulas with educators so it's very interdisciplinary and and with new parents who have recently done done the deed so to exactly. speak exactly and it, and they're able to talk about how they navigated the choices that they had ahead of them and how it went and for the most part it's about people telling stories about encountering some form of challenge and then really having a great experience based on being able to make an informed, educated, and empowered decision to move forward in the way that was best for them. Which is huge. I, you know, I, my background before I was a writer about maternal health was that I was a labor and delivery nurse for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so many women came to the labor room you know, they they had taken, you know, some sort of a class, like maybe the six-week class that the hospital offered or a weekend intensive or, you know, an online education. But it really glossed over the experience in terms of how many decisions have to be made through the course of even a normal labor. <laughs> and so many women sort of came in unprepared to participate in their own healthcare decisions. Instead, you know, they were they were painful and frightened and they let us do anything we wanted. And they trusted their providers as they should and the vast majority of midwives and physicians that I worked with were absolutely trustworthy. But some weren't. And too many women came in and just got kind of snowballed with interventions that uh, did either, in, you know, did some level of harm. 
And I guess that's a good place to start in t- in having the doula conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I described a little bit in my introduction that this is based on a new issue brief that was released, but I think we really should talk about, you know, what is a doula? What, mm-hmm. what is a doula? Do you want to take that? Sure. I mean, are, are you a doula also no, in addition no. to being that? Okay. Um, well, doulas are educated and trained about how to provide support during labor and birth and often in the prenatal and postpartum periods as well. And while doulas don't ever provide medical care or treatment, they're non-clinical health service providers, they can provide emotional support, um, physical support, and information for childbearing women and also support their labor partners as well, whether that's a spouse or partner, um, a mom, a sister. So it doesn't take the place of having a family member there for a couple reasons. One is because the doula is there to support or spell the labor partner as well, but also that family member or dear friend is in there having their own experience. Um, And the doula is the one person there who is outside of the equation and whose sole job and sole focus is to really make sure that the woman who's giving birth has what she needs to feel comfortable, to feel supported, to feel secure, and also has the space to make the choices that she wants to make that are really best for her, given her values, given her preferences, her priorities, um, her religious beliefs. And so some of the many things that a doula can do is they might provide informational resources before uh, labor begins, so during some prenatal visits, and they can provide referrals to other services, whether it's um, prenatal yoga or aromatherapy or or massage or in a community-based program, it might be to something like a food pantry or to case management services, things along those lines. Um, And then during labor and birth, typically the doula comes to the family's home or wherever uh, they are going to be for labor and accompanies the family during that early labor period, helps the woman to find ways to stay comfortable, to keep moving, um, answer any questions, offer encouragement, and then once the doula and the family arrive at the hospital, hopefully the doula can continue to do that, help the woman to move around and stay comfortable, and to um, provide hands-on support, like whether it's massage or helping her take different positions that are comfortable to her. And also because, you know, you were talking about the providers and how it becomes very difficult in labor for women to have the time and space to make decisions about their care. That's one of the things that doulas can help with as well. So while doulas 
never make decisions on behalf of a woman and never impose their views or values. Um, or shouldn't. Exactly. Right. I mean, you know, we all know that there are providers, teachers, football players, whoever, that step out of the lines of what they're supposed to be doing right. in some kind of quote-unquote malpractice. But exactly, in the appropriate uh, model of providing doula support, the doula is always there to support the woman making the best decision. So in the moments uh, that are so challenging, in the height of labor, the woman may need an extra few minutes to think about something. Mm -hmm. She may need a little more information. And one of the things that a doula can do is reflect back on what that woman has told her are her own priorities. So mm -hmm. whether it's uh, have whatever that may be, whether it's avoiding a particular kind of intervention or making sure that she has full understanding of certain things before they happen, and the doula can be there to say, just a sec, did you have enough time to think about that decision? Did you have any questions you wanted to ask the provider? And things like that that seem so simple and minor become uh, moments that women really remember and really value that there was someone there to make sure that she had that space to ask her questions. And it really makes women feel like they have been able to have control over the process, whether or not the outcome is exactly as she had hoped or planned. The research shows that the biggest determinant in a woman feeling satisfied with her birth experience is if she feels she had control in the decision-making process. And that's one of the ways that doulas really help with uh, patient satisfaction and women's experience of care being a positive one. So many women report that they feel bullied during the you know labor and birth process by their provider or their nurse or you know whatever the situation is. They feel like they just kind of got these interventions or situations forced on them that they didn't understand, didn't opt in for, didn't have any control over. And that's sort of what the doula can do is be sort of the the stopgap measure between the provider who has his or her own agenda, concerns, um, style, and the patient who is, you know, legitimately distracted by labor and also confused and stressed. So the doula can be the go-between to say, okay, I heard you say this, Dr. So-and-so, did you hear, do you hear that too? You know, you can be that person. And so many women that I talk to you will say, no, I'm not going to do use a doula because my partner or my husband's going to be my doula. And a really important thing to point out is unless your partner or husband is an actual honest to God labor trained doula, they've never been in this situation either. They don't know what's normal, what's not, you know, they're not, they don't need to be in that position. They need to be the person who is there to support you but they don't also need to be the expert. Exactly. I mean, there's a great quote um, I'm by 
think her name is Pam England from Albuquerque. And it goes something along the lines of, you know, you may love your partner very much, but on a hike up Mount Everest, you sure wouldn't um, trade a Sherpa for your partner. Mm -hmm. And that's really paraphrasing. It was much more eloquently said uh, in the original. But that's the idea. Your partner absolutely should be there. That is great. And the doula doesn't take the place of the partner. But likewise, the partner doesn't take the place of the doula. I would say even if they are a trained labor support person, which is pretty unlikely, Mm -hmm. um, even then, that partner is there to support you in very specific ways, Mm -hmm. being there as the person who knows you best, Mm -hmm. who knows what you're like, who knows how you like your back massaged maybe, or who knows what you're like when you feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or might recognize that something's going on or that the woman stays shutting down on a certain level and can communicate that. But at the same time, the doula's really there just to fulfill this professional function of supporting the mom. And she, the doula, mostly doulas are women, although there are a few who are not. Mm-hmm. But that doula um, doesn't have a dog in the race, <laughs> proverbially speaking. And right. so there, the doula is not going to get upset by seeing the uh, childbirthing woman in discomfort, for instance, the way that a family member might, in part because they have seen and observed labor many more times than the family member, but also because they're able to take that step back and have a, um, you know, an outsider's professional experience of it, not with the person who they love. Right, right. Because they're engaged in the process too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we mentioned earlier that the doula shouldn't have her own agenda. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember back in the day when doulas weren't quite as popular or common as they are now. They were pretty new on the scene in terms of the hospital birth climate. Um, and, you know, my first introduction to doulas my first introduction was actually pretty adversarial. Um, you know, I was a labor nurse. I had a patient who um, wanted a low intervention natural birth, and I frequently was assigned those patients because I liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd had, you know, a midwife delivery out of the hospital myself, and I, I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this patient, bless her, she was frightened. She came to labor ready for a fight. And, um, she brought her doula, who was equally ready for a fight. And they had a very, very strict um, prenatal education and philosophy uh, that was rigid. And I, I don't want to mention which style it was, because I think it was more about the mother and her family than it was about that particular style. Mm-hmm. But, and about rigidity. Yeah, it was about rigidity. and yeah. And I understand it. You know, it's such a frightening experience for so many women that whatever they can do to gain control or to feel like they're in control of the situation, they're going to do it. And I don't blame them. 
Um, so a lot of women who haven't, mostly first-time moms, will come into the labor room with really, really ironclad preset ideas about how it's going to go, what they're going to do, what's going to go down, who's going to do what, and this is how it's going to be. And as we all know, that ain't necessarily so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had a, a doula who was really fighting any single thing that we did, even if it didn't make sense. And so that kind of my first impression was like, geez, what are you doing here? Um, after a while, we all got into the groove and we worked around each other and um, the labor progressed as it did. The next experience I had with a doula, and again, we're talking 10 years ago or more. Um, I had this woman who was so awesome that she created this magical rosy aura in the room that everybody who walked into that room just got into the groove of what this mother wanted. And the difference was night and day. Mm -hmm. Um, Back then, I would have said, if you've got a supportive labor partner and you've got a labor and delivery nurse who is in tune with what you want and you've got a midwife and you've got a supportive provider if you've got all that 10 or 12 years ago I would have said you don't need a doula and matter of fact they might even get in the way now things are so different that I think that almost every mother needs an advocate you know yeah yeah well I think that there are a lot of factors that come into that I agree with you and Sadly, I did not have a doula myself, but if I could go back and do it over, I have three kids, so I don't think I'll be doing that. Uh-huh. Um, not to mention my age, which I will not disclose. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I do. I wish I could go back and do, do it over again because, and being a long time ago, 13 and a half years ago, doulas were much less common and there were fewer options and I didn't know anybody who had had a doula. But when I think back particularly to my first labor and birth, I mean, and I was not alone, but it is so obvious to me how beneficial it would have been in part just to have that calm, encouraging presence and someone to say, you are not going to have that baby in the next, you know, 30 minutes. You are fine. Right. (laughs) Right before knows what's happening because I had certain things that were atypical and nothing was problematic, but I just felt like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't know. Should I go to the hospital? Should I not go to the hospital? Right, right. (laughs) Because you've, if it's your first time, chances are you haven't sat with your sister, your cousin, et cetera, the way that historically we as human beings did in a small village sit through that kind of thing and experience people's um, life transitions together. But we don't do that. So how do you know unless you have someone there who does, who's experienced? And the other thing is that even when you choose a very supportive healthcare provider, there are, and even if you buy luck of a draw, because who you get as an L&D nurse is luck of a draw. It sure is. Why <laughs> can it make a difference? Mm-hmm. You know, again, speaking from personal experience as well as professional experience, it just, the nurses make a huge difference and they can be anything from 
your biggest, best champion or really not so much, you know, and not so interested. And they can also be either combative or supportive and generating a real different vibe. But since you don't know who your nurse is going to be and you don't know whether your provider is going to have another person in labor at the same time, for instance, or what else will be going on with that person um, that gives them extra time to spend with you or less time to spend with you. It's really great, I think, as you're saying, for everyone to have that support that they know someone will be by their side and will be making sure they can ask the questions they want to ask. They can take a moment to say, okay, let me just think about that for a minute. Can I have 15 minutes? Is this a real emergency or can I have 15 minutes maybe just to think about it? And it's very rare that there's a situation where you can't have 15 minutes to think about something. Of course they happen, but you know when that when that happens. But the other thing that I would say as far as universality of people needing, wanting, deserving to have access to doulas is that, you know, we both come from A, a time when doulas were not really universally available. But um, the, the more evidence there is about how beneficial doula support is, it's easy to think of it as something that's a luxury. But when you look at it as an evidence-based service, you have to really take a different perspective on it. And when you consider that randomized clinical trials have proven that doula support, continuous labor support by a trained doula results in uh, a lower chance of having a cesarean, less need and request for epidural pain relief, fewer forceps uh, and vacuum-assisted births, a more positive childbirth experience, um, better APGAR scores for babies, shorter labors, right on down the line, increased breastfeeding. More vaginal births, fewer C-sections. Yeah, Yeah. that's the big one with, uh, you know, it reduces it by the likelihood of the cesarean by 28%. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And it's been recognized increasingly more and more recently by the mainstream, by uh, obstetrician gynecologists. So a couple of, a year and a half ago, oh my gosh, it's probably two years ago now, um, the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists and the um, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialists put out a joint consensus statement on the safe prevention of the primary cesarean, the first cesarean for that woman. And one of the recommendations they make about how to best avoid a cesarean is to have continuous labor support by a trained doula. And they recognize that that service is currently underutilized. And not people only- can't afford it. Exactly. Yeah. And in research that we have done in New York, we found exactly that, that if you ask people why they have or don't have doulas, it's almost always 
comes down to the financial constraints. And yes, sometimes people feel like, well, my partner's fine, I don't need it. But financial constraints are the biggest barrier to women having trained labor support at their birth. And that is why, coming full circle, we felt that it was so important to do this issue brief, um, which is called Overdue, Medicaid and private insurance coverage of doula care. Um, and what that issue brief lays out is it goes through what is a doula, what do they do, what are the benefits, and then talks about how can we um, make this key evidence-based service more widely available. And so it goes through in a very, <laughs> towards the end, it really is looking for specific provisions in the law or in um, public health policy, how could that be made more available? What can um, groups advocate for and push for? What are feasible strategies? So looking at what are different ways that Medicaid could reimburse for doula support? That's well, something that happens in two states now. Nan, let's take a, a, a short step back, though, to sure. discuss two things. Yeah. One is sort of the price range for doulas. Mm. And in my, what I understand is that it could be as little as a couple of hundred dollars, depending on who is taking care of you and how long she's with you, or it could be several thousand, depending, again, on the same situation. And currently, since the doula is not providing clinical medical um, skill, they can't bill insurance for their, for their services. So there are some community-based organizations that will provide um, low-income women with low cost or free doula care, but they're few and far between and very limited. So that's what that's sort of the preface preface to the issue brief. Am I right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And by and large, the um, doulas that are charging just a couple of hundred dollars are very often new doulas who are still trying to get experience under their belt, right. which is great and they can be wonderful. But when you're talking about doulas who have a good amount of experience, um, it is typically, I would say, at least $500 or more, as you're saying, up to several thousand dollars. Right. And so women who can afford it can have that service. But what we what we know is that those are also the women who may need those services the least because they can afford better quality maternal health care. They can afford to access the type of birth services that they want. Whereas right. the women who really, really, really need this kind of support are the women who um, we know have the worst maternal health outcomes. And those are low-income women, Medicaid patients, women of color. Exactly. So most people don't realize that almost 50% of all births that happen here in the United States are covered by Medicaid. That's right. That's a couple million babies born every year exactly. for a couple million mamas. Yeah. 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 I mean, that raises a lot of, of issues 
one is just that I think people don't realize what a huge portion of um, ex of the expenditures spent on health care is on childbirth-related care. So about a quarter of all hospital stays are related to childbirth for, if you count moms and babies as two separate people, which is what happens when they leave, they are two separate people. Right. They come and, in as one, they go out as two. Exactly. <laughs> and more is spent on childbirth-related care than any other type of hospital care. Right. So it's it has quite a financial impact on the system. And for me, I would think if you are looking at the most common reason for hospitalization and the area where the most is spent, that that would be the number one area that the policy lens would be focused on and where we would be trying uh, to make the best possible efforts at improving the quality of care, improving people's experience of care, improving the outcomes. But unfortunately, because most women and babies are healthy, I think that's, that's part of it, this issue really flies under the radar. And there's not so much attention as you would think or hope given to maternity care. And to link that to what you were just saying a moment ago, one of the reasons that we know we really need that attention on this issue is by looking at the racial disparities. And while maternal mortality, a death related to childbirth, is extremely rare, it's used as a bellwether indicator to signify how healthy the maternity care system is. And what you find is when you compare the US to other countries, we fare worse than any other industrialized country, even though we spend the most on childbirth care of any country. And even worse, African-American women have had three to four times the risk of childbirth-related death compared with white women. And that's been true for over 60 years. Right. And it's not getting better. So we need, as you're saying, to look at what are some strategies we can use to reduce those disparities and having a community-based doula program providing uh, labor support that is free to the mom, although compensated to the doula, um, can be a really important step in improving outcomes and reducing disparities when it's the, the women receiving the services are those most at risk for poor outcomes, African-American women and low-income women. And the extra added bonus plus is that with doula care, you use fewer interventions, which decreases costs. And yes. I think I read in the... Um, issue brief that the authors, you got, y'all, <laughs> estimate <laughs> that um, the reduction in C-sections from the, just C-sections alone from the use of doula care could save Medicaid about $646 million every year and private insurers around $1.73 
billion annually. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, those numbers, there's always a lot to to clarify. But what that means is, so those numbers are calculated just from the 28% reduction in cesareans mm -hmm. um, right. that could be achieved with a doula because that's the average that has been found over many, many studies. But what's really interesting, and so that doesn't account for paying the doula, which you would need to do, but it actually provides a pretty good um, amount of money if you divide it out over all of the births. But what's really interesting is that is looking at one significant area of savings, but there are a lot of other areas of savings that are much harder to quantify, but very, very real. Yeah. So how about a cesarean in the next pregnancy or reducing the use of epidurals where with an epidural, you're paying the anesthesiologist and for um, additional interventions or complications that may result, there's a great return on investment much as I hate to put it that way, when you increase the rates of breastfeeding mm -hmm. because breastfeeding has such a positive health impact on women and infants. Mm -hmm. And you're also reducing preventable complications and chronic conditions from the C-section itself that may um, arise later, not be known yet, but may have costs to the system, of course, as well as the the people involved, for many many years to to come, and we're starting to explore the idea of um, how the labor experience, the labor and birth experience, impacts um, a woman's risks of developing postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And I don't know; you probably know. Um, if there are studies that bear that out, that we're seeing lower incidences of postpartum depression when women feel like they weren't bullied through their labor. Um, that is something where I think we all know that that is true. It's anecdotal, and, but not studied. We need, to see, we need to see a lot more study in that area. I mean, there are small studies and lots of indications that different um, types of support and avoiding trauma in mm -hmm. your birth, um, which is a very real and under-recognized problem, um, all of those things have a big impact on uh, mental well-being following birth in the postpartum period. Yeah. So um, I think we know it to be true, and there are some good small studies uh, touching on those things, but it's a re really great area where we need to learn more. I love me a good study, but even better, <laughs> I love a good story. And I talk to women all the time about their birth experiences, and when women come out of their birth experiences feeling like, yeah, I did that. I was there. I did that. And I did well. They, that empowerment, that feeling of personal well-being and power carries into their newborn and postpartum and parenting experience that 
hey, I can do this. This is something that I can do. I'm good at it, in fact. Whereas so many women come out of their birth experiences just feeling like, what the hell happened? And that can carry over too. And you hear it. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes being a doula is described as mothering the mother. Yeah. And I think that one of the benefits of that is that it can set up the expectation in that new mother of how to care for and guide and support um, the new the new baby. It's mm-hmm. together that first step of um, working together for an empowering experience, for an experience where you are uh, actively making decisions feel in control, having a dialogue, and then moving forward with the same, um, in the same mode with your own parenting. It is Mm -hmm. that first step and how wonderful when you are feeling just enveloped in love Mm -hmm. and feel so satisfied because you feel proud of how you've gone through it, whether that is with interventions, without. I mean, cesareans are life-saving surgery. Yeah. When you need it, you really need it. Exactly. So you can feel thrilled about any intervention that comes up and as far derailed from your plans and hopes as it may be, if you feel confident and proud and empowered and engaged that you made decisions in the best way to protect your health and experience and your babies, then you are going to start out on a great foot when you're home as a new parent. And God knows you need all the help you can get because yep. you're going to be worked out <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, the, to your limit, But you know, as everyone is. But that's why you shouldn't be going in to that experience feeling traumatized, feeling bullied, right. feeling doubtful. Um, and so, I think, yeah. so often the line that gets tossed at the mother is, well, all that really matters is that you uh, have a healthy baby. And yeah. that is just nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, everybody wants a healthy baby. Of course we do. But that's not all that matters. There's another human being in that equation, and her health and well-being is as important, if not more, than the health of the baby. And that's not a popular thing to say, because as a culture, we are in the habit of putting the baby first and mom second. Right. But actually, when you mother the mother, when you support the mother, when you take care of the mother that's when the trickle-down benefit goes to the baby. Absolutely. And we don't, that's a culture shift we just have to make loud and proud. Yeah. And, you know, again, it goes back to we're the country spending the most in the world on childbirth-related care. Is our bar so low that all we're saying is your baby survived unscathed? That's what you should expect? Right. You know, it's really, (laughs) it's pretty depressing. But to recognize the benefits can be lifelong for everyone involved. Um, I think many more people are recognizing that component 
And it's yet another reason in favor of having the needed support to start out on the right foot. Yeah. I do a lot of work in the humanitarian um, circle where mm-hmm. the focus is on, um, you know, provide the support to girls, women, and the mothers in the community. And um, and then it expands into the family and the rest of the community and, and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, time and again, that's just so clear to me that that is the missing link to real growth and expansion in mm-hmm. so many circles. Yeah. So... In the issue brief, you lay out a, a bunch of very specific bullet points about what needs to be done so that private insurers and Medicaid will cover doulas. And they're a little policy wonky, so I'm <laughs> going to ask you to go through them and translate them for me. So the first one is Congress should designate birth doula services as a mandated Medicaid benefit. For, right. Yeah. So and what I would say is, more than like everybody has to do all of these things, these are each different advocacy strategies mm-hmm. and potential solutions um, that can be taken up where feasible, where you have your sphere of influence, um, et cetera. They're all various options that each one can over time, because this isn't going to be solved overnight but can over time contribute to integrating continuous labor support into the healthcare system and making sure that it's paid for and that the people who need it most have access. So to address that first one, um, Congress has the power to indicate what services must be covered by Medicaid. Most services covered by Medicaid are decided by the states. So the most comprehensive step that could be taken would for Congress to say, we're going to add doula support to the list of services that all states have to cover. That'd be a great step. Currently, it's only two states, right? Right. It's two steps. And that was achieved by state legislation um, that looks very different in each of those states, where the um, state legislators voted to apply to Medicaid to have Medicaid approve their desire to cover doula support. And that has gone through in those two states. There are a host of challenges to it being implemented, which is how we come to one of the next strategies that we list, which is federal guidance for Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Because the Medicaid system, as I was just saying, is very much determined state by state. Different state health departments function in completely different ways. They might have be related or not in the same, in the same department as Medicaid, not in the same department as Medicaid between the health department and the Medicaid department. Mm -hmm. Um, Data can be collected totally differently. Payment can be structured totally differently. So one of the things that we're requesting with federal guidance is for federal Medicaid, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, to put out guidance to the states and offer technical assistance to say, look, this is how you can do it. This is the pathway. This is what you do. Um, They could create 
and must, I think, create for this to really work a code. Medi the CMS determines a lot of the um, codes. The billing codes, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so there should be a distinct, clear billing code for this kind of service. And that would make things a lot easier. Uh <laughs> so I, I live in one of the states that Medicaid provides coverage. I'm in Oregon. And um, you know, from what I understand of it is that doulas can be reimbursed, but the rate that they're reimbursed at is really, really low. I don't know the actual number, but maybe they get 100 bucks. That's, right. that's just, I'm tossing a low number out there. And if they have spent, you know, 12 hours with a woman for that 100 bucks, she's not even making minimum wage. So it's not like we are paying for doulas to, you know, make a living this way. But what it is, is it's a step in the right direction. And some of the um, doulas that I've talked to have indicated that it isn't even worth their while to go through the paperwork hassle to apply to be a Medicaid um, reimbursed doula because right. they, they don't have the office infrastructure to be able to fill out all the forms and take care of all the paperwork. But it represents a legitimacy for the services that they provide. Yeah, that's right. And it's the first step, as yeah. you were saying. You know, there are a lot of I could go on about the situation in Oregon, but nobody, I'm sure, would want to hear that level of detail. But the things that are relevant are that, you know, sometimes what comes up is this question of like, well, how do you organize it? And that's where CMS could be helpful because I think that it's very appropriate to say if you are providing public funding for something, there need to be parameters set. So this is not something where your sister can go and be like, I was the doula, can I get reimbursed? Right. You have to have core competencies identified, appropriate training that's identified, maybe a state registry or payment through an agency. There are various regulations that are currently in place for other um, areas like com uh, community health workers. And so those pathways have to be better identified, clarified, and set up, and not for, for reimbursement to work smoothly. Like right now in Oregon, and, and you have to have a billing code. Right now in Oregon, the way that billing is set up is it would go through the healthcare provider, mm -hmm. which is really nonsensical considering that the doula often will have very little and perhaps no exposure to the uh, physician who, to the billing physician outside of that birth. And so to think that a physician will bill for the doula's services, get the money and then forward it to the doula is setting up a system that is not, um, the most streamlined. And That's so a nice way to put it. <laughs> I, Being blunt as I am, I would say something different. That is totally effed up. It is. Yeah. And between the 75, because that's what it is, between the $75 reimbursement fee and the fact that you have to try to get it from a healthcare provider with whom you have no relationship, it's not, it's a first step. Yeah. 
I know that the uh, Department of Health is exploring different alternatives and looking at the um, expenditures. And that's why something like help from federal Medicaid from CMS could be helpful to say, look, this is a model um, setup. We're going to give you, you know, three options for this, three options for that, or these are the principles, and this is an example. So that I think could uh, eliminate a lot of wheel spinning if that if that were to move forward. So a lot of the other bullet points are, again, they're a little wonky for our discussion yeah. here. Yeah. But I think that it's important for women to know that they could be helpful pushing this agenda forward for themselves and for other women down the road by making a simple phone call or sending an email to their um, congressmen and senators and say something like, hey, this issue is going to come on your radar pretty soon. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm a constituent um, Mm -hmm. of yours and I really support it. And I think another local way to support this is to, if you had a doula, make clear to your provider and to the hospital how that experience was beneficial to you Mm -hmm. and how valuable it was. And it can be linked to what a good hospital experience it was because hospitals right now care more and more about patients' experience of care and, and providers, because it's being emphasized in innovative payment models. It was emphasized in the Affordable Care Act. And increasingly, there are um, payment bonuses, et cetera, that are linked to patient satisfaction. And hospitals and providers need to know that doula care is a real component of that. And that's something that now that it has become, now that there are financial incentives, it's becoming um, elevated to a level of, it's getting a level of attention that it never got before. Right. Money talks. Money talks. And just on that hospital level, because hospitals can work well with doulas, doulas and they can work not so well. And together... When there are hospital policies that facilitate doula support, like not counting a doula as one of the quote unquote people in the room, if there's a limit, or um, allowing them to work with the woman to remain mobile as long as possible, things like that that are very simple for hospitals to work on and prioritize. And they really, make it a much more effective strategy to have a doula there, good, strong policies by the hospital, and an environment where doulas know they're appreciated. Some hospitals um, have trainings for their labor and delivery nursing staff, either by a doula or sort of a modified doula training, so that the nurses become familiar with what it is that doulas have learned mm-hmm. and can appreciate where doulas are coming from. And that knowledge in coming together can really also enhance the relationship 
between the doulas and the nurses. And it needs to come from both sides. I mean, doulas for sure need to respect the constraints that nurses are under, the mm-hmm. pressure on time, the time pressure that, that nurses are under. But the more that those different groups, providers, nurses, doulas, et cetera, can come together, learn from each other, and learn about how to communicate well, um, the better it is for the mom, the family, and for all of those people working in that labor and delivery unit. Because who wants to work in an acrimonious environment? Not me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nan, I think you really summed it up really beautifully. And I think that we could go on talking about this all day long. Um, and maybe we'll we'll stop in again and do this again later. There's one um, thing that I like to ask women who are talking with us on the podcast. I, I really um, love that the podcast has developed into being mom-to-mom conversations. Would you mind answering the question, where are you right now in your life as a mom? Tuffy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, what do I want to say that um, is going to be retained and listened to by more than one person? I mean, maybe I'll just answer the, the funny answer that is really the first thing that comes to mind. My oldest is 13, uh-huh. and I have a middle son. They're all boys. My middle one is 11, uh-huh. and my youngest is 8. And where I am as a mom is I've decided that my finite um, container of micromanaging all of their, you know, goofy details like where they've dropped their towel or what they're doing between 4 and 4.45 before they go to something else, I, I think that that container has become depleted and I don't think it's a renewing container. (laughs) So I've just decided that it might be uh, best to become a free range parent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although I've always been a relatively free range parent. Now I've decided that if I adopt that term for myself, Uh I can rationalize an even greater level of independence they can (laughs) learn from their own mistakes you and me both nan we're raising them wild style (laughs) my kid went out in shorts the yesterday when it was a little colder than i had anticipated i thought it was going to be 45 and it was a little more like 30 and some woman was screaming at me on the street and i just thought well you know what's gonna happen yeah they might get a little cold and you know what maybe the next day He'll decide on his own to wear pants, but you know, bigger fish to fry. So I have bigger the, fish to fry is where I am as a parent. I have the 15-year-old girl um, uh-huh. version of the short story. Um, you know, it's 30-something here. It's really cold. And my 15-year-old has a really excellent crop top wardrobe. And <laughs> she was determined that she was going to wear this outfit to school that looks wonderful and incredibly appropriate in August. Um, And I got a phone call about an hour later saying, Mom, um, I do need that jacket. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I brought it. She's been wearing her turtleneck since then. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nan, I'm going to say goodbye here. I really appreciate your insights. And I can tell that you and I could talk again and again and again. Well, let's talk soon. Okay. Sounds good. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. My mama said. My guest today was Nan Strauss, Director of Policy and Research at Choices in Childbirth. You can learn more about Choices in Childbirth at choicesinchildbirth.org. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, and everywhere books are sold. You can see more of my work on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. If you have questions, email me, jean at jeanfaulkner.com. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Please subscribe, share, leave a rating on iTunes if you feel like it. And thanks for joining me. Let's keep talking. Mama